Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. These are godless times, Mrs. Snail. I'll drink for that. Okay. study other animals that way, why wouldn't we just study the behavior of all animals that way? We include us. We're not going to talk a lot about uh, humans in this class. It'll happen. Um, you can go back and read Darwin, Go Read Origin of Species. And he talks about the idea of there being the notion of, of an evolutionary psychology. He talks about mind and later on, he writes a book called The Descent of Man, where he talks about human evolution. And he clearly, in that case, is talking about that. William James, the person who wrote the first psychology textbook in 1890, wrote a book called Principles of Psychology. Um, and James was the first, so it's the first psych textbook. He was a professor at Johns Hopkins. And along with Wilhelm Wundt, is regarded as the sort of him, Wundt and James, the two fathers of the psych department, of the psych department, yes, well, yes, of, the, of psychology. And in fact, in our department, we have two uh, computers that students use for research, uh, and they're actually named Wundt and James. And in fact, typically, if you go back on people's academic history, so you find out who someone did their PhD with, and who they, they did their PhD with, and go back, go back, go back, go back, we all go back to Wundt and James. That happens with everybody. I know I go back to Wundt. Um, I don't know everybody else in the department, but I'm sure we, we did this in Newfoundland when I taught history of psych one year, uh, and the student, finding out who I did my PhD with is easy, can I tell you? And finding out who she did her PhD with is easy, because you know her. After that, it becomes going and doing research, but eventually it was pretty neat, because everyone goes back to work with James. So James is really important, and James was really interested in the function of, of behavior, the function of thinking. That was his thing. He was part of a school of psychology called functionalism. And so what does the behavior accomplish? Which is a lot about what evolution is about, right? Because the, the only way something is going to be preserved is if it increases fitness. And fitness, in this case, remember, fitness means, you don't know this yet, but now you start playing the testing remember all the time. Remember, fitness means reproductive success. When Darwin, Darwin never said survival of the fittest, but when people say survival of the fittest, they don't mean the biggest and strongest. They often do. That often comes out that way. But fitness just means reproductive success. So how does a behavior, any character, or any characteristic uh, contribute to reproductive success? So James was into that. 
what does the behavior accomplish? Now, it might not directly affect reproductive success, but it affects it indirectly, right? So if you have better access to food, you're likely going to be have a little easier time catching your genes on it, for example. Okay. So we typically or very often think of psychology as being a quote social science, which is a division I don't like. The idea of dividing up the quote social and natural sciences I find artificial. Uh, so that said, people do it. Um, most psychologists, now not in our department actually, um, but most psychologists adhere to what, what uh, Steve Baker has called the standard social science model. And this model, which we'll talk about in a second, of course, is what the, the model is at the background, the basic set of assumptions of what you're doing. And if the basic, basic set of assumptions of what you're doing obviously going to affect the research that you do, the theories you have, the hypotheses you generate, etc. Right? It's going to do all of those things. It can't, but it can't not do those things. The problem with it is that it's completely at odds with evolutionary theory and I'm pretty sure with reality. So, and we'll talk about it in a second, what I mean by the standard, well, what Pinker means, and I agree with what the standard social science model is. Okay? Questions so far? You good? Okay. So what is the standard social science model? The assumptions of it are that we are blank slates. Um, you know the idea of tabula rasa, right? The idea of the, the John Locke idea. The idea that we are uh, John Locke from Lost, the <laughs> philosopher John Locke. The notion that we that experience rights on our mind and creates who we are. And we start out as a blank slate, or a blank paper, in fact, is what Locke said. Um, it's often translated into the Latin, tabula rasa, which is blank slate. So experience writes on the blank slate. And that's all we are. I think most of us here would realize that that's, that's a pretty extreme position, and it's also quite silly. Um, because it can't just be that. It's a nice myth. It fits in nicely with sort of good old Western liberalism, right? Anybody can be president. Right? As long as he has the right upbringing and good parents. I can make anybody smart. I can, anybody, as long as they get enough nurturing and books, will be a genius. That really does fit in with our sort of, you know, nice, cushy, liberal values, doesn't it? Even if you're not like liberal, I mean small L liberal. When you say that, it's interesting because it's sort of is viewing the mind as something completely separate from the body, which is also ridiculous. Because would you think that if I took a kid today and trained it really hard, one day will he beat all you say Bolt's records? It seems unlikely. No matter how many times 
You get a kid to sit in the backyard and shoot pucks. Is he going to become Wayne Gretzky? Unlikely. Right? So it's an extreme position, and I think most of us accept that it's a ridiculous extreme position. I think. Right? You can't turn anybody into anything. Everybody's a little bit different. Some people aren't as smart as other people. It just works that way. Sorry. What follows from that is the idea that biology is completely <laughs> irrelevant, doesn't it? If experience is all that matters, biology has no effect. Saying, well, you know, uh, anybody can do anything, and if that's the case, then how their body actually works doesn't matter. See that kind of follows? Does that make sense? I'm not saying that idea makes sense, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah? Okay. Now, the final one is a little more subtle. And the final assumption is that there are only a few, or perhaps only one, learning mechanism. There's only one way to learn something, only a few ways to learn something. Now, why is that the case? Well, if biology is irrelevant, we don't have to worry about any, use a computer analogy, we don't have to worry about an operating system. We don't have to worry about built-in programming. Um, if the blank slate's true, and I can take anybody, and if I'm good enough to them, I can help them along, it must be the case that there's really only one or very few number of ways of learning. All right. Question, so do you understand the idea of the model? This is Steve Pinker's idea, but uh, he's not the only one that talks about it. The first person I read, first time I read about it was in Stephen Pinker's book called The Blank Slate. Uh, the, what's it called? The Denial of Human Nature or something like that. It's something to that effect. Great book. Stephen Pinker's great Okay. So why is this wrong? Well, development sort of kind of needs biology. You can't have, even if you accept the, the, the whole, you know, this is a, if you accept this whole notion, there still has to be something learning something, something changing. It needs biology, doesn't it? So you have to have biological mechanisms for development to occur. So when you hear language, you learn language as a kid. No one has to teach language to humans. It doesn't work that way with little kids. Usually, must have some kind of disability. Kids just learn language when they hear it. It's an incredible thing. Think, think about that for a second. You're born, you don't know anything. Like, nothing. And by the time you're about three, you can carry a, a conversation in complete sentences with somebody. And it doesn't matter what the language, it's the language you brought up around, and if it's two or three languages, you can switch back and forth. 
That's amazing. As long as you are around the language, you will learn it. This is why things like, you know, putting kids in French immersion in, in, in junior kindergarten, and by the end of the first year, they can all speak French. Parents might not, but they can talk French, they learn French. It just happens. It's pretty cool. And it's interesting that later on it becomes really hard to learn language, right? It doesn't just happen automatically. You have to actually think about it. You have to think about it. You don't see little kids that are two years old going, all right, so it's I before E except after C. <laughs> all right, so if I was to put that into put that into this tense, that doesn't happen. They just learn it. Right? And then you go into, if you go into like a, a, a class, uh, Isabel, my wife, she teaches French. And I am amazed when I walk by the classroom sometimes at how people don't know things. I hear people in the class, and she's teaching, and I'm just amazed when I hear her having to explain the colors and the numbers when she was teaching the complete introduction to French. It blew my mind, because I thought you knew that because you're Canadian. I thought, like, you start French in, like, grade one or two. When did they start French in Sissy Marie? When did you guys start? Yeah, so you should know that already. But... <clears throat> It becomes really hard when you're older, right? It doesn't just happen. You have to really work at it. Being in an immersed in an environment helps, but you really have to learn it. You have to work at it. Now, Isabel learned, started, started speaking English because uh, she went on Katinovic, and it was part of the thing where you travel across the country. Uh, she didn't speak English when she was, until she was 18. Um, she writes better than I do, which pisses me off at a level that I can't even begin to in the words, because I'm not afraid of it. Um, and, but you can work at it. You can learn, you can think about it. Did you have to think about learning English? Most of you in some languages in the time. No, it just happened. Do you remember trying to learn English now? Probably most of you don't. Because it just happened, or whatever your mother does. No, you didn't have to think it just happened. Right? There's something special going on with language. Some special, perhaps, cognitive module. Some special biology that the humans have that no other animal has, by the way. Which is why we rule the world. <laughs> and we're wrecking it. But we rule, we're going to wreck the world just to show the other animals that we can. Show them who's boss of the world that we're wrecking. No matter how many times I flash hockey stats at my children, and I tried this with both of them. I really did. How many goals have Rocky the Shard scored his career night? See, she has no idea. 544. Um, I said, by the way, Maddie's my daughter, if you don't know that, and she gets marked by a separate person. Worry about that. Um, just like, I wouldn't care. But I told her, my told her brother, all he saw didn't help. She doesn't even like hockey. I didn't tell her things during the year. Katie has one last night, she's like, yeah, whatever. <laughs> I tell John, and John has become, for some reason, a Los Angeles Kings fan, which is, it's not offensive, at least. He didn't become a Toronto fan or, you know, something like that. Boston. He makes jokes about it. If I become a Boston fan, I say, well, you'll have to go live somewhere else. <laughs> you won't be allowed in the house, son. That's just, it's unacceptable. LA's okay, they're far away, we only play them once, twice a year, so. 
I sat with, well, with both my kids doing stuff like watching Formula One races every Sunday. I don't either of them remember that. I remember it. You do remember that? That's nice. Good. <laughs> yeah, I was really into you. Did they become big Formula One fans? No. But they both learned to speak English. Because <laughs> it just happened. And she also learned to speak French. Because it just happened, right? Huh. Wonder what that is. Probably because we have a specialized system for learning language because of our biology. And the language learning is special, it's different, it's not just like learning anything else. So if I, why can't my mom's dog learn English? My mom just got a new dog. A little Dachshund, it's like this, it's small. Why can't it learn to speak English? Because it's a dog. <laughs> and dogs can't speak any language. Why can't you remember where you cashed 30,000 seeds six months ago in a 40-kilometer radius and recover 25,000 of them six months later? You know why not? Because you're not a Clark's Nutcracker. They can do that, and it's really cool and exciting and wonderful, and it makes you think about the importance of, of looking at behavior from this evolutionary angle because you think, why would a Clark's Nutcracker be able to do that? Clark's Nutcrackers don't migrate. When food gets scarce, they start hiding food. Okay? They find food in the morning and they hide it. And they hide it for the overwintered kind of time when food's scarce, but also they have earlier breeding than every other bird species where they live. And they can do that because they have food stored up. It's a suite of what we call adaptations. It actually increases their fitness, right? Because they're able to feed their young. They can breed a month earlier than every other songbird in that part of the world. And if you look around here, we do the same thing you talk about here with black-capped chickadees, which aren't quite as, not even remotely as good like that, about 30,000 seeds for six months. Um, or we can talk about blue jays, things like that. That's pretty special. We, we could do this, because we can just invent shit. <laughs> Say, it's alive, you know, phone, and I can take a picture of the GPS coordinates. <laughs> Clark's Nutcrackers don't have to do that. They got a special system in their memory that goes, yeah, it's there. And they're amazing at it. Right? I was once asked, I think I've told some of you guys this before, I was once asked by the Discovery Channel back when it was a channel about science and not a channel about psychics and fate, sharks and such. Um, what the smartest animal was. Have you ever seen that on the, on the, it used to be, they would, people would write in and ask, or call in, and they called, you asked for it, and people would say, what's, you know, how does this work, why is the sky blue, whatever, and then they'd ask a scientist, and what the people they asked, and somebody said, what's the smartest animal? They asked me. Um, and I said, well, you can make an argument for a Clark's Nutcracker, um, because they store, they, they can do this. I said, on the other hand, I've never seen a Clark's Nutcracker drive a car to start a civilization. So I'm pretty sure we win. Right. Someone else was saying, this biologist said, pig. I don't know what my name is. Well, pigs are, I think, more delicious than Clark's Nutcrackers. I'm just guessing. 
See, there's such a thing as human nature, just like there's a thing like called Clark's Nutcracker nature or dog nature. We, because of our biology, have certain specializations. Right? The neat thing about this is that this is, a, is looking at the world and saying that there are similarities between people, which I think is such a, it's so nice. It's saying that let's look at the commonalities between humans. Let's talk about human nature, and that's neat. Right? So that's like saying, you know, today is, is, a, is a horrible anniversary, right? September 11th. But you think to yourself, it's not about how we're different from everybody. It's about our shared humanity. And that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. This brings us to the nature versus nurture argument. So the standard social science model divides nature and nurture into two different things. And it seems ridiculous because you can't have one without the other. How do you have nature without nurture? In other words, how do you have biology without an environment? How do you have an environment without biology? Can you? Jeez. I don't see how one can. I don't see how they're suitable or partable. It's called the interaction principle. Those of you that know some biology realize that this is such a stupid question. Nature nurture. Right? I know man is a biology student. Anybody here else a biology student? Few of you. And you know the idea of there being a difference between like the idea that nature, that, that the environment of genes interact is just, it's a thing. That's just a, it's a basic assumption of biology. And it can be shown over and over and over again. Okay, talk to um, <laughs> Comedy in nature. I'm back, baby. All right. Feeling good. So this interaction principle then says that everything is the product of a gene-environment interaction. Now, some traits are less affected by, 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 by the environment than others. You have to have extremes of, of some sort of environment to affect them. The number of eyes you have is not a pretty what we call facultative trait. It isn't affected much by your, by, by, by your environment. Your environment in that case is your um, in vivo environment, in your utero environment. Right? Even extreme cases of, you know, moms who smoke crack while smoking, well, I don't know, eating cigarettes and drinking gin. They may have really effed up kids, but they still have two eyes. Right? So some things are not very affected, but there still is interaction. Now think about that, you know, a lot of you know, kids with fetal alcohol, some of them look like affect their eyes are spaced the right distance apart. There's something that's screwed up in their development, but the number of eyes is a pretty, that's not going to change. You know, it can. Uh, think about limbs and things like that. Those kind of problems with like when moms have taken thalidomide back in the 60s. Those things can happen. But they're pretty resilient. They aren't really affected too much by the environment, but the environment can still affect. 
On the other hand, there are things that change a great deal and aren't affected that they're very, again, we call facultative traits. They can be changed very easily. There still is biology in there. There's got to be, because there's a human or a, or a rat or whatever. Your hair length. Right? Because you can just cut your hair. Cut your hair, because then you just go back. No, 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 no. It's supposed to be the same. Okay. Now, one can make a, a point about you know losing one's hair, for example. So this is the, this is the Panama Canal. Well, this is the Panama. This is Panama here. And over here we have this is the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific, and they're coming together. There's a canal being built, and soon you'll be able to travel from the Atlantic to the Pacific. <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt's up there digging. I don't know. I took that way too far with Teddy Roosevelt living in my head. Um, <laughs> digging that stuff. Talk about a guy, eh? Teddy Roosevelt, I'm going to build a Panama Canal. I'm going to be president of the United States. You know, he was once, while giving a speech on the campaign trail, shot, and he finished his speech. Like, that's a tough guy. That takes a shot at him, he's like, yeah, I'll be fine. So in conclusion, vote for me. That was, was a pretty cool guy. And he had a great mustache, too. You know, some great big bushy thing. Pocket watch. I'm just assuming he had a pocket watch. Everyone had a pocket watch like 1902. Where's the time? I don't, I don't think he talked like that at all. The thing is, genes don't just set a limit. This is something you hear a lot. You hear people say that genes set a limit. And then the environment kind of fills it in. Well, this is as far as you could be. That's what your genes say. I don't know why I'm this here. Yeah, it's right here. Yeah. And then the environment fills it in. But it can't, no matter how much you do, you can't go any higher than that. It's a really simplistic notion. And those of you that know a little bit of biology know that it doesn't work that way. That the environment will turn on a gene which will change the environment, which will turn on two other genes and turn off four others. And then this and this and this and this and this and then whatever. And that's all happening in real time very quickly. So it's not that simple. It's not that simple. If it were that simple, you know, why wasn't, why haven't you heard of the, the other, you know, the greatest bro a brother a combination for most points scored by a set of brothers in hockey? Who is it? What brothers? The what brothers? Yeah. Because Wayne has 1900 to something and Brent had four. <laughs> it used to be the house. Gordy had, you know, Thousands and then there was Sid. He had six. Why wasn't Sid now and Brent Gretzky also awesome? What's something different about them? They weren't freaks like their brothers. And then there's only Richard Rock and Richard Gretzky. Alain Lemieux and Mario Lemieux. Alain played one game with the St. Louis Blues. I'm sure they practiced a lot. I'm sure their dads made them practice. And one, some of those kids went, yes, I want to shoot pucks all night. This is fun. The other ones were like, this really kind of blows. I don't want to do this. Look, my older brother's already awesome. He's going to make all the money. I'm just going to sit here. This is going to be great. So they aren't just setting a, a, 
of women. So learning needs a mechanism uh, to allow experience to change behavior and change cognition. I think they should have put more highlighters in this reading lesson. <laughs> <laughs> it needs more. I wonder if that was done on purpose. Like, did someone just do that? They must have. Well, someone clearly did it. It just happened. <laughs> Zeus did it. But what I'm thinking here, notice how I didn't defend anybody's religion there because I used the God that none of you believe in. Um, <laughs> But the interesting thing is, less, uh, there's, there's probably someone in here that believes in ancient Roman gods and now I'm going to be brought up on some kind of charges. <laughs> this whole Roman club, you know, that. Figure this out, this is done by the red man. You know what's great about this? That's a sentence fragment. <laughs> Writing lab! It's not really a whole sentence. Um, you don't find that kind of ironic? Anyway. I have, those of you that don't know me, I have really no, I switch back and forth. I don't really have an off button. I kind of turn it off at home a little, swirl up more at home, play more video games. Would you say that's a biological fact? <laughs> yes, I think it partially is. Yes, had you known my father, <laughs> yes, I think there's something to it. But my mom, see, that's an interesting, that's actually kind of a neat question. Because my, my, my dad was a really intense guy. And he was, I've told some of you guys this, my dad, when he had a heart attack, drove himself to the hospital. That's a type A personality. <laughs> that's that's going around. Um, on the other hand, my mom is really kind of sweet and nice, and she swears a little bit more than most moms, I think. But not like my dad did. My dad invented new ones, compound swear words, that I will not <laughs> share with you. But they were tremendous. If I can, it would be wrong. But it's interesting that in some ways, and what could add, some ways, and what among. And then there's other ways that I'm not like any of them. Right? So, part of that's biology, part of that's the upbringing. Knowing how much of both that is, how the hell do I know? Right? Because let's talk about, let's say my, my dad's um, swearing, let's just go with that, which is actually controlled in a different part of your brain than other language. When my dad had his brain tumor, he could still swear, he couldn't hardly speak at all. But he still, like he woke up once from having a hemorrhage and went, oh, son of a bitch. <laughs> he couldn't talk to anything else. Uh, and he'd go like, I didn't say it loud, so it's not recorded. Ha <laughs> see what I did there? There was no evidence that I said fuck. Oh. <laughs> so it's interesting that, so that's controlled in part of your brain. So there is something interesting and biological about swearing. Um, in fact, if you swear, when you get hurt, and this is cool. So if you ever, if, if, you, if you have a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife, or perhaps all four, um, <laughs> your mom or whomever you live with, if you stub your toe, you go, shit! And they go, don't you talk like that! <laughs> you can tell them, for me, it actually um, kills pain. It causes a release of endorphins when you sweat. So it actually has a function. It's cool. Now, so that means then that Swearing, there's something biological going on. It's in fact controlled a different part of your brain than regular speech. It's not controlled by Broca's area. Huh. That said, I also grew up in a house where swearing was, well, I wouldn't say acceptable. I don't think my parents liked that I started talking like my father when I was about 14. They're like, well, 
Because my dad said to my mom, what the F do you expect, Leslie? <laughs> you know, so, um, I also heard it around me. Now, how can we tell how much of that is because I've heard swearing all the time, even good swearing, like, was like, my dad was not a horrible man. It's just, this makes it sound horrible. Like, you know, he wasn't like that. He never did this either. I don't know what that was. What's that? What was I doing? Perhaps a seizure, like when he had the breakthrough. Um, look, you can't laugh at it. You do. He was around. find that funny. Also, tell me you don't have off. You like it more you like me. If he came in here, he'd totally take over me. Even if you're just sitting there, because he has such a big personality, you go, I'm not paying attention to David anymore. There's that weird guy sitting up front, making sarcastic remarks and swearing. But how much of it is me seeing my mom thinking it's a little unacceptable? How much of me is thinking that society says it's a little unacceptable? How much of it is me hearing swearing at home? How much of it is that I got my dad's, half my genes come from my dad? We can't pull those things apart. It's clearly the case that it comes from both. It must. It must. And it's interesting that my brother and I and my sister, my sister swears worse than me or my brother. She's a horrible person as well. (laughs) Oh, that's a lie. Anybody that lives with three boys, what how old are they? 14, 12, and 6, 7? I'm amazed she gets through the day. So it's, it's an interesting question, right? It actually shows that almost anything, this interaction principle is always happening. So it turned out while you're making a joke, it's actually a pretty damn good question. Um, we can't study behavior in a vacuum, and I don't, that's metaphorically. Clearly, we can't study real behavior in a vacuum because the person, well, you can study this behavior. <laughs> <laughs> and then they die. That's not what I mean. I mean it, you know, in a metaphorical sense. In other words, we can't ignore biology. I'm not saying you always have to be, no matter what you do in psychology, always looking at biology. I think that's silly. It's like saying that you always think that, and it's like biologists are always using evolution as their backdrop, but they aren't always saying, and how does this increase fitness when they're looking at, you know, I don't know, let's think of something. Well, studying, like, say, the Krebs cycle, when Krebs discovered the Krebs cycle. I don't think he was probably thinking, I wonder how this affects fitness. Nobody's thinking, that's cool, I just discovered something to probably name it after me well winning a Nobel Prize. <laughs> exempting behavior of organisms from principles of biology is like exempting behavior of atoms from the principles of physics. We don't do that, it would be silly. I kind of changed the laws of physics, God. Last week's you can't ignore, for example, the evolution of sociality, so being social in other species or in us. And this is where it's interesting because we think about sort of social psychology, right? Oh, we sort of think of it that way as being, or just how communities and societies interact. That must have evolved. It's a result of humans inventing it. So we can't think that we can't ignore it. 
I mean, why are people nice to each other, generally? It's bizarre that people are nice to each other, right? Shouldn't we be selfish all the time? Well, we're pretty smart, so I can tell when you need something nice for me, so I do something nice for you later. Or if you screw me, I screw you back. Right. So ignoring, that's why I mentioned sort of social science, ignoring evolution in this case is kind of silly. All right. So questions about that, because that sort of lays the ground rules for actually how I think about psychology in general. I'm pretty sure how Lori does and uh, Paul and Dwayne. I'm not sure about these things, but it's probably true for her too. I don't know what the new guy yet. He's new, I'll tell him anything. <laughs> Joe! Ish. Um, okay, so does that make sense what I was saying there? Any questions about it? Is it okay? Is it good? Okay, why would you study animal behavior? So, I think it tells us a lot, a lot about ourselves. I hope I explained the last few slides because we're animals. So, we can learn about ourselves by studying other animals. Sure. So if we're going to talk about social behavior in humans, we can also talk about our close genetic relatives, the chimps, which are 98% of our genome with. It's going to be similar. Now, there's a pretty special 2% because very few of you right now are pooping into your hand and throwing at each other. <laughs> and that's what chimps, that's something chimps do. I hope you're not, I can't see that well, but I think I hear it. <laughs> I'm not sensing that right now. But we can talk about, say, social behavior in chimps. We can talk about play in, in, in young chimps. And we can see something similar in humans. We can talk about the evolution of things like play or things like communication systems. Take a look at facial expressions in chimps. Because they have facial expressions like we do. And they are, in humans, we'd say cross-cultural or culturally universal. It's the same in chimps. We don't call them cultures. I don't know why. Uh, we don't. But if we got a uh, committee, and by the way, a bunch of chimps together is called a committee, which I think is great. <laughs> um, you got a committee of chimps over here, and one that's 500 kilometers away. The expression on their face for fear is exactly the same. And other chimps understand it. That's an interesting piece of communication that chimps have with each other. By the way, it looks at the smile, it looks like a human smile. So whenever you see chimps in old-time movies look like they're all happy and smiling, they're scared shitless. Somebody's off screen getting ready to shock them. This is kind of horrible. You don't see as many chimp movies as you used to. <laughs> you know, they're riding around on bicycles, smoking cigars, wearing top hats. You just don't see that anymore, which is probably good, but it was, it's funny for a couple of minutes. Homer Simpson's a good right? What about the chips that live among us and smoke, smoke cigars in our hats? <laughs> uh, the great thing about that show I've been on for so long is there is a quote for every single moment of your life. <laughs> we can talk about parental care in other animals and in us. One of the interesting things we find with animal... Well, I mean, put it this way. In any uh, uh, sorry, polygynous species, it's a species polygynous, uh, any species that has one male, many females, um, one of the things the female is always trying to do is convince the male to do any parental care. Right? Sure. 
There's a lot of ways you can do that, and we'll, we'll talk about that in the class. In humans, it's interesting because any species that has internal fertilization, the mom knows it's hers because it comes out of her. The male never really knows, does he? He can't be sure. He can be pretty sure. One of the ways that so you'll see mate guarding behavior. Once a male in a lot of species has mated with a female, he just follows her everywhere, making sure that no one else is getting in there. Okay? Poor choice of words, sorry. I We see something similar in humans. When a baby human is born, Parents come by, of course, mother, mother and father, parents of the mother and the father. The parents of the father half the time say the kid looks like the dad and half the time say it looks like the mom, which is true, right? Because you're sort of, that's usually the case. That's what you would expect. Uh, the parents of the mother, 80% of the time, say the kid looks like the dad. They're, they're not doing this on purpose, but the parents of the mother are convincing the father, so your kid, take care of it. Because they know it shares their genes. Because they know it shares the mother's genes. <laughs> they aren't doing it on purpose. It's cool. It's amazing stuff, right? If I'm looking at you, I'm not looking at you. I can't even see. Isn't that amazing? And the parents are doing, and by the way, it happens in every culture and in humans where it's contested. It's about 80%. Yeah, it's neat because we see this kind of behavior in non-humans, we see it in humans. And again, the parents of the mom aren't trying to do this, on, they're not doing this as a thing. They're not like, okay, remember, we don't know it's his kid. So let's say it looks like him. It just is something that happens. Pretty cool. So you could also apply animal behavior. Right? Conservation things, invasive species. We have the Invasive Species Research Institute here on campus. You know, um, with the Austin Pedro doing that stuff with his work. Loves me some Pedro I too. It's just what a guy. I really like it. So that's just interesting. It's, we can apply it, make the world a better place. The reason I did it is because it's cool and knowing stuff's fun. Right? Why do science? Here's an idea, because I want to know how stuff works. When, when, when I first met my mother-in-law, I, she went, well, she, I guess then she was my mother-in-law, because was my girlfriend, but she said, why do you study memory in birds? Is it because you want to help people with uh, Alzheimer's disease or something? And I said, no. And this is what I said in French. I know it's accurate. The way I say it, uh, je veux savoir comment l'univers marche. I wonder how the universe works. I don't know if it's savoir comment. I never, I never, I never know. I just use either one. They're pretty forgiving. I'm an anglophone, so it's... 
I just want to help in a little tiny part of the universe, not the whole thing. That would be that would be a little bit much. It's just neat to know stuff. That's why people do science usually. Save the world, yeah, great. There is a guy that took something I did and used it to develop the memory test people with amnesia. Great, I don't care. It's cool, but I don't care really. More like I know something you don't know. <laughs> I'm gonna tell you. I mean, that's that's that's, that's why you decide. <laughs> really, it's what drives most people. You're solving pro- you're solving interesting problems. It's solving puzzles. It's like, why are you making a puzzle? Like, why are you putting together a jigsaw puzzle? You're not doing, well, so I can eventually glue it together and hang it on my wall. I'm looking at just amazing. No, it's because you can. All right. This butterfly, modern butterfly, it's a brightly colored guy. And ornamented, right? So it's got all these, it's very brightly colored, very obvious. You've seen these probably flying around, you know, white dots, brightly colored, ornamented. It's also poisonous. It's it's quite poisonous. It's also quite poisonous, sir. I don't know why I'm doing that in that accent. It just seemed like something little bit. It's quite poisonous. That scooter that we have with butterflies are quite poisonous. Mum? Why? Why is it why is it part of the color and poisonous? Ideas. Who ideas? To let uh, predators know. Okay, so it's a signal. Yeah. Okay, that's good. And you want to let predators know, yeah, expand on that. Like how do you mean? Like let predators know what? That is poisonous. Oh. It's, uh, okay. The orange and black is fine. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a warning saying don't eat me. Look, here I am, but don't eat me because I, you know us, make you sick. I do have a picture somewhere of a blue jay throwing up after eating a monarch butterfly. <laughs> I, I, I don't know where the hell it is, but it's around somewhere. Someone have to find it. Other reasons. That's that's a perfectly good good guess, and it's not wrong. Though. But there are other reasons why it's poisonous and brightly colored. Doesn't yeah, please, back. Yeah, like it's not like it's got um, horns that if you bit into it, it would hurt. That kind of thing is what you're talking about? Yeah, it doesn't have any like, claws or teeth. Yeah. Okay, so it's basically defense. Sure. It's a, it's a different kind of defense, right? So it couldn't develop, uh, no matter how hard you try, you're not going to evolve. Not that evolution tries, but it's shorthand. Um, big fangs that, or, or horns that stick out. It's just not going to happen. This is what evolution had to play with. Good, good, good. Other ideas? Please. Mating? Mating. How so? Go ahead. Oh, so, so other ones would recognize it. Okay? So again, we're talking about a signal here. Could be a mating signal. Other ideas? How does it become poisonous? Hmm? It's actually it's diet. It eats it eats milkweed. And milkweed will make you sick. 
unless you're a monarch butterfly, actually. Milkweed doesn't make monarch butterflies sick. It will make insects sick. It'll make anim other animals sick. It'll make you sick. Like the, you'd have to drink a lot of milkweed, you know, insides. You love milkweed before you got ill. But it would be it'd be irritating. Like if you took milkweed and rubbed it on your skin, it would be all red and unpleasant. So what they're doing is they're eating poison. Their diet is poison to everything else but them. So they, they basically evolved the mechanism to detoxify a plant. They can eat something that none of us, none, really hardly any other animal on the planet can eat. Other thoughts? Okay, not bad. The only one that really isn't true is the mating one. And that's fine because it was a good guess. It was a good guess. Well, it's also going to have a... Where do you think the coloration comes from? There's got to be a genetic program that makes it that color when it develops. It, it, it must be the case that its ancestors were brightly colored and ornamented and poisonous and passed that suite of genes and behaviors on. So all these things are true. Right? By the way, that actually isn't a monarch butterfly. That is a vice viceroy butterfly. Um, a viceroy butterfly isn't poisonous. It's just colored like a monarch. It's cheating. It's not sending it all talking animal communication, but honest signals. This actually isn't sending an honest signal. Monarch's sending an honest signal. It's like, right, here I am, don't eat me. Because I'll make you sick. This thing's just like, yeah, I'm a monarch butterfly, look over here. Yeah. I wouldn't eat me, I'm a monarch butterfly. <laughs> and you know the interesting thing is, if you give birds a choice, a forced choice between a monarch and a viceroy butterfly, they'll take the monarch, because a viceroy butterfly looks more like a monarch butterfly than a monarch butterfly does. There's a whole bunch of mimics, and we'll talk about mimicry in this class. There's a whole bunch of mimics of the monarch butterfly. And they're just totally cheating, which is kind of cool. Good on So Tim Bergen talked about the four whys. Why do we have a characteristic? He talked about two kinds. He talked about well, something covered all of them: a causal or proximate mechanism, or a functional or ultimate mechanism. Now. I don't like proximate and ultimate too much just because they, ultimate sounds like it's somehow better. And it's not better, it's just at a different time scale. I like causal and functional a bit better, but they're, they're both fine, and I, I probably will say ultimate and proximate now and then. I try to avoid it because uh, just like I said, ultimate makes it sound better. You know. Anyway, we can talk in causal mechanisms about genetics. Genetic mechanisms and developmental mechanisms. And developmental mechanisms would include learning. Would include sort of classically called psychological mechanisms. And that's typically what psychologists are interested in, right? That's typically what interesting. The funny thing is, the interesting thing is, when I asked you why the butterfly was colored that way, almost all you got all these reasons here. Well, actually, I told you about diet. 
Everything else here is an ultimate mechanism. It's a functional mechanism. What it accomplishes. What it accomplishes. What does it accomplish? Well, it accomplishes being a signal. It accomplishes defense. We can also talk about the evolution of it. I don't know much about the evolution of monarch butterfly coloration. Uh, it's, it's, it's something called being, being brightly colored and ornamented antipoisonous. It's called aposematism, and we'll talk about it in class. I don't know much about the evolution of that stuff, I think. I can tell you, though, we'll, we'll talk about the evolution of a lot of interesting behaviors, including the evolution of the, of the courtship ritual in the infant fly. Um, and we'll look at it, and we can pretty much redraw the evolutionary history of, that, of, of the behavior of its courtship ritual, which is kind of cool. Because they actually give a gift. The male gives a gift to the female of silk that you spun. Which distracts her so he can mount her and inseminate her. <laughs> That's the function of it. We'll talk about the evolution of the dance language of the honeybee, which isn't a language, but it sounds cool. We call it a language. And we can pretty much figure that one out too, because we can look at closely related species and see what their communication systems look like. The function is actually sometimes a little bit harder to figure out. And these two go together just like these two go together. To truly understand behavior or any other characteristic, we have to understand all the explanations. And none of them are better than the other, by the way. Functional explanations aren't better than, 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 than causal explanations, or vice versa. Right? They're just more understanding. And it's not like you always have to, whenever you do any research, look at all four of them. That's impossible. That's impossible. I mean, I look at uh, my PhD work looking at um, memory in, in, in chickadees and juncos. There was an evolutionary reason for the difference, and I was pretty sure I knew what it was because the chickadees stored food, and the food storing involved, uh, you know, they didn't travel south for the winter and the whole thing. But I didn't test that. I was looking at their memory differences. I made some guesses based on evolutionary thinking why those differences happened. And I didn't look at all at their brains, right, or the genetic stuff. I looked at the behavioral stuff, just one of the causal mechanisms. Right? So it would be crazy to try to do all those. And that, that still took me three and a half years. So don't mix up cause and function. And it's easy to do. I was, um, when I was in grad school, one of my profs, Jerry Hogan, who was a uh, sort of classically trained ethologist, which is to study an animal behavior. And Jerry would get really upset when people would mix up constant functions. So if he said, why do birds migrate? And he would say, to get to a place that's warmer. And he'd say, no, that can't be the cause, can it? Because cause comes before effect. That's the outcome. It's important. But they don't fly south to get to, because it's you know, get warmer. They fly south because the daylight is getting shorter. And a mechanism 
A cognitive mechanism it has recognizes the shorter delay and starts migratory restlessness, which is something that happens in birds. They start getting all worked up and they start actually traveling in a compass direction. They should do that. They'll even do that if you put them in a cage. The birds in a cage that migrate around this time of year, they'll be standing on the southern side of the cage. That's what they do. That's built in. If they're in a cage, is it to get to a warmer place? No. They're getting anywhere. They're in a freaking cage. Birds aren't stupid. They're like flies. See, it's easy to mix them up. It's easy to mix them up. But, like I said, I think to truly understand a characteristic, you have to look at all the explanations. Not just, and like I said, I don't think that every paper you read, every piece of research you do has to do all those. It can't. But you should keep them in mind. Keep them in mind. Hardly any questions. Did anybody have any questions? You got no questions? This is all completely sensible, makes it all easy. Maddie, go ahead. On the previous slide, yeah. I just want to make Yep. Let's go back. Okay, which one's causal, which one's proximate? Causal and proximate mean the same thing. Are they mean the same thing? Yes. And functional and ultimate mean the same thing. Okay, so but what's the four? Oh, genetics, development, function, evolution. Okay, all right. Yeah, sorry. Oh, I get it. Yeah, yeah. And it's funny, because Timberg is four wise, has been pointed out before. The word why isn't in any of them. <laughs> so it's, it's kind of annoying. <laughs> Timbergen was pretty important. Uh, Timbergen um, is one of the people that. Uh, one of the most, like he's one of the most prized, one of the most important people that ever did animal behavior research. He was a pretty important guy. Nico Timber. Nico. 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 My cultural references are much older than all of you. Other questions? And like I said, you can't, you don't do this in one paper, you don't do this in one piece of research. But it should be in the back of your mind when you're doing something. And you should think about that in all of psychology. Right? When we think of, I don't know, let's talk about the, oh, you know, the, the fundamental attribution error. That's what the only social psychology I know. Isn't that the one where you blame uh, the environment when something Bad, a good happen, a bad happens, and you blame yourself when something good happens, kind of, right? Or you blame personality when someone does something good, you do something good, and you blame the situation, you do something bad, but exactly the opposite, you don't know the other guy, right? You never, when someone drives by you and they cut you off, you don't say, oh, you must be having a bad day, and you're distracted. No, you go, asshole, right? When someone cuts you off, and you cut someone off and you're driving, you go, sorry, distracted. Was texting. <laughs> you don't say, I'm a shitty driver, sorry. <laughs> right? Now, why do we do that? Well, it's obvious that we're doing that. What does it accomplish? Well, one of the things we probably learned this 
right? There may be a genetic component, sure. We've learned that when we have enough data, we have a lot more data about ourselves. So we can know we're not actually shitty drivers when we're just distracted. That's making a logical decision there. You have less data about the bad driver who cut you off, so you blame him or her. On the other hand, what does it accomplish? Well, these kind of delusions, which is what they really are, right? It's, a, it's really kind of delusional thinking, because it can't be true. What does it accomplish? Well, I think it, it probably keeps us doing things, keeps us active. Because we were constantly screwing up, but oh, I screwed that up, I'll never do it again. We'd never do anything. Right? So things, we can always think of, I think, behavior using all these. Doesn't matter what kind of psychology you're interested in, you're saying behavior or social psychology or whatever. Right? Why do people commit crimes? Right? Think about murders. Wow. Well, what do murders accomplish? They usually accomplish you going to prison. But it's interesting when you look at murders, most murders happen between people who know each other. They mostly happen because of two young men doing something. It's not usually a man or a woman or two women that kill each other. You know, it's, it's a guy killing a guy. That's the most common set of perp. Remember they call them the, the perp the perps? <laughs> and the victims. Two young men. It's been thought of by Daley and Wilson that this is really just making displays gone horribly wrong. Showing how tough you are and just taking it a little too far and killing someone. So in a way it's fighting over a woman, but it's not really, it's not really, it's actually displaying what a peacock does with its feathers, but it's taking the display just a little too far. Most murderers aren't strangers murdering strangers. The vast majority aren't. So you think of all kinds of different behaviors, and you can look at that from that. One of the things I want to get, well, no, I think I talk about that later, so I'm going to leave the better places for next time. All right, so any questions? That's enough for today. See you guys. These are godless times, Mrs. Snell. I'll drink to that.
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want, okay? Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck, B-R-O-D-B-E-C-K, at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.